0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, July 19th. The cost of rent in Canada is dwarfing minimum wage in every province. We discuss what needs to be done to address this widespread disparity with Ricardo Tronjan, senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives.
1: Five years ago it sounded like science fiction, but now researchers from the University of Alberta are a step closer to making the cryopreservation of human tissue a reality. We learn about this unique work being done at the U of A from Jason Acker, professor of transfusion medicine and cryopreservation.
0: Satellites orbiting Earth have to navigate a minefield of debris around our planet. So what needs to be be done to deal with space junk and who's responsible for taking out the non-terrestrial trash. We discuss with Hugh Lewis, professor of astronautics from the University of Southampton.
1: The cost of rent across Canada is now dwarfing minimum wage in almost every province. What needs to be done to address rental affordability? Joining us to talk about it is Ricardo Tranjan, who is a senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Good morning to you, Ricardo. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Okay, so the CCPA did an analysis on rental affordability in Canada. What were a couple of the big takeaways for you?
2: So what we did, we calculated how much a worker needs to earn in order to be able to afford a one bedroom or a two bedroom unit without spending more than 30 percent of their income on rent which is the standard affordability measure um and also without assuming that they work uh, 40 hours a week and what do we arrive with then it's a rental wage as we call it for one and two bedroom units and then we compare we compare with the minimum wage um across the country. And so we do that at the neighborhood level, the city level, the provincial level. And what we found overall is that it's very hard for today for a minimum wage worker to find a place they can afford without spending too much money in on rent. And that's not only in the big cities, as we always hear about Toronto and Vancouver, but it's also in much smaller places. And it's also across the country from PEI to, to, to um, British Columbia.
0: Okay, so, so we we're covering, Ricardo, that this is a coast-to-coast, this is a nationwide issue, but I understand that not every city is equal when it comes to this issue. So can you give us an idea about the, the gap and the magnitude of the rental wage minimum, uh, re- uh, the rental and the wage minimum uh, gap when it comes to Toronto and Vancouver, for example?
2: Yeah, Toronto and Vancouver are still the worst, uh, and in those cities... Um, So uh, it takes for one bedroom um, unit, it takes more than twice the amount of the minimum wage. So to afford a um, one bedroom unit in Vancouver, you would need close to $33. Whereas in October 2022, when we calculated this uh, figures, the minimum wage was 15.65. So that's 15.65 against 32.36. In Toronto, the minimum wage at the time was 15.50 and the one bedroom unit was close to $34. Sometimes a family with one income needs a two bedroom unit. Think of um, single parents, single uh, parents, uh, couples with one income earners, sometimes folks who have parents living with them. And then the te- two bedroom rental wage is even higher. In Toronto is $40 and in Vancouver is $42.60. So, so the discrepancy is it's, it's, it's quite significant.
1: So many people are having issues, you know, being able to pay for groceries, for example, these days, you know, rising interest rates obviously having an effect on everything. Do high interest rates affect that imbalance in the rental market, do you think?
2: It impacts in the sense that, um, especially smaller landlords and, and, and investor landlords, uh, will feel the pinch of high interest rates uh, more quickly, and they will try and pass that on to tenants. Uh, also, any pressures they're feeling with uh, utilities, if they're the ones paying, and they'll also try to, to to pass on tenants. So, especially in provinces that do not have rent controls, that additional cost of high interest rates and of inflation, um, especially related to energy will be uh, directly passed on to tenants so it's likely that that higher rent means that they will have even less money for other things because as we know in the expression goes uh, rent eats first folks pay rent and then they pay the utilities and they do it what they have to do with the rest to 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 get by
0: on the sidelines Ricardo this is a simple supply and demand issue but if we want to a more robust supply we'd have to see uh, the building of more affordable rental units so so why aren't the developers building these Or what are some of the challenges and barriers that developers face when it comes to building these type of units that might be more affordable
2: supply is part of the problem absolutely and we need more supply but the problem is when your objective is affordability when your objective is housing security it, it, it can't be just any supply it's just not any housing uh, purpose-built units tend to be more affordable and they ensure uh, security of tenure for a long time. Non-market unions, um, they remove profit out of the equation and they're usually the ones that are actually affordable to very low-income families. And in the long term, whether or not these units have rent controls makes a huge difference from the perspective of affordability and, and housing security. So for me, the, the, the paradox a little bit is that private development and private rentals, obviously the objective is to generate profit and to generate returns with on investment because that's that's what private markets do, right? And we cannot demand of the private sector to provide housing security and housing affordability. That's not what they do. So for that segment of the market, we need much more direct intervention from from, from government in order to provide those kinds of housings.
1: And on that note, Ricardo, just to kind of wrap things up, when it comes to this analysis done by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, I mean, what do you recognize? What do you recommend then for government officials and for other stakeholders, for that matter, to try and improve affordability now, but in the future too?
2: Yes, increasing the supply of the type of housing that is actually affordable is incredibly important. We have been talking about that for a very long time. The federal government completely dropped the, the, the housing file in the early 1990s. Um, in 2015, it came back on that file, but we thought it was going to be make a big difference. And so far, what we've seen is some important initiatives, some funding, but it's all kind of pretty piecemeal and, and not the kind of resolve that would uh, we would expect. In some provinces like Ontario and Quebec, where they had um, rent controls, they're now weakening those rent controls, and that from the perspective of low-income tenants and moderate-income tenants also will be um, a very big problem. But in a way, like the policy solutions are known, and we have been talking about them for a long time. And sometimes I think both the folks are starting to get bored of hearing me talk about them, because the, the problem right now is mostly the political will and the, the, the interest in, and, and the, the resolve to enact those policies. We know the solutions. Let's just make that very clear. We know the solutions. It's just the, the, the parties in, in, in power at the federal level and, and across provinces are, are not um, acting on it. Mm-hmm.
0: Ricardo, thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate the conversation.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank
0: you. That's Ricardo Tranjan, Senior Researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives.
1: The cryopreservation of human tissue is a step closer to reality. Yeah, it sounds like science fiction, but joining us to explain and discuss his research is Jason Acker, professor and scientist focusing on transfusion medicine and cryopreservation at the University of Alberta. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for being with us.
3: Good morning, Sue. Thanks for the invitation to join you.
1: I think the first thought is, you know, science fiction movies where you're freezing whole bodies and bringing people back, but we're not talking about this. I- explain what you're doing with cryopreservation and what that looks like.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, unlike you know the the science fiction, which you know, with the broad goal of being able to you know produce, uh, preserve humans and, and transplant. To, brains and all of that uh, stuff we see in the science fiction movie, the, the reality is that uh, cryopreservation right now is an enabling uh, way to extend the life of biological materials that are now the new the new medicines that we're using in, in clinical transplantation, clinical medicine. Uh, the ability to bridge uh, uh, the donation of a biological sample in, uh, in space and time to the transplant recipient really can only be afforded by the ability to cryopreserve them and store them at low temperatures.
0: Wow, very interesting. So, so what... Is the end game when it comes to this? Is it to, to study, to find out more about the, the human condition, diseases, whatever it might be? Or is it literally at, at some point to not only extend lives, but maybe bring life back to life?
3: Yeah, no, the, the, the current application, we've been cryopreserving cells and using them in transfusion medicine and transplantation uh, for over uh, three or four decades now. The challenge uh, for us in the cryobiology field is to, to extend that technology to cells, uh, in more complex arrangements like in tissues and in whole organs. So the work we're doing at the University of Alberta is really focusing on how we can take what we've learned over the last few decades on cell systems and translate that into the complexity of an organ. And by enabling organ cryopreservation, we really are going to help solve some of the current bottlenecks in transplant medicine. We're really excited by the advances that are being made here, uh, as well as other locations around the world. But we're uh, we're pretty excited by uh, what the future is holding right now.
1: So to dumb it down, you would, for example, a heart transplant, that heart needs to be taken and it has to be, you know, for lack of a better term, very fresh when it's transplanted to the recipient, right? But this way, you might be able to freeze it and and allow it to survive a little longer before it gets to transplant?
3: Yeah, that's the that's the the uh, approach we're taking right now. So, uh, in nature, natural systems actually survive uh, winter by by being able to uh, freeze in various forms and and survive that damaging ice that can form. Uh, What we've done is developed a technology that allows us to control the ice uh, in those complex systems so that that ice is no longer damaging. So while efforts were taken over the last few decades to try to cryopreserve human organs, the damage that occurred occurred because of the ice uh, really prevented uh, any successful transplants. But over the last uh, few years, uh, with work that's being done uh, here in Alberta, uh, we're developing uh, small molecule compounds that actually allow us to control ice uh, in organ systems, and and we are now uh, cryopreserving uh, whole organs, uh, both liver, lung, uh, kidneys, and working on hearts, uh, in order to extend them so when they are donated, uh, if they can't be immediately transplanted because the recipient is not available ge- either geographically or not ready to receive the transplant, we have a bit more time to actually prepare uh, that individual to receive that generous gift.
0: Mm. Very interesting. Let's let's talk about, you know, within this science, uh, how do we stack up as, as a province or... You know, how does the University of Alberta stack up as far as an institution, uh, you know, across the globe? And is there collaboration between what you do and and other folks in the same field of science across the world?
3: Yeah, I know, absolutely. No, Alberta is a world leader in this area. We've, uh, over the last few decades, because of the enormous uh, investment that the the various governments and various granting agencies have put into this science uh, of being able to preserve cells, tissues, and organs. Uh, we really are a world leader, and we've got a large uh, collab- or consortium of collaborators here in the province. But we're also working with other institutions like Harvard Medical School, Stanford, and other leading institutions around the world to take this to develop this technology and move it forward. Specifically, the work that we're doing at the U of A with small molecule ice recrystallization inhibitors uh, is in collaboration with other Canadian universities, uh, like the lab of doc- uh, Dr. Robert Bennett, the University of Ottawa.
1: Fascinating, ultimately life-changing research being done right here at the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for your time this morning.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Appreciate it. Jason Acker, professor and scientist focusing on transfusion medicine and cryopreservation, the University of Alberta. Well, if there's one thing humans are good at, it's creating garbage. Not only is there a floating garbage island twice the size of Texas in the Pacific Ocean, but there's a minefield of space junk orbiting the planet. Joining us to talk about space debris and how to address it is Hugh Lewis, professor of astronomic, <laughs> no, that's astronautics, a member of the Astronautics Research Group at the University of Southampton. Thank you so much for making the time, Professor. Appreciate you joining us.
4: Good morning. Uh, Really delighted to be with you.
1: Do we know how much space junk is floating around out there and what constitutes space junk anyway?
4: Uh, Space junk is, uh, I guess, all artificial objects that humans have have launched into space that that no longer serve a useful purpose. Um, And that could encompass things like dead spacecraft, um, parts of rockets used to launch the spacecraft, and then fragments of, of those things as well. Um, There are organisations that that keep a a good um, track of the number of objects that are in orbit. So um, we're currently looking at about 36,000 objects the size of a softball or larger. Um, And it's the number of smaller objects that we're really concerned about. So about a million objects that are size of one centimetre or larger, and maybe 130 million the size of one millimetre or larger.
0: That's, that's When you put it in those terms, Professor, that's incredible. So how big of an issue is this debris flying around, for example, the International Space Station and satellites in orbit? Can they program their way around these things or is it going to happen or does it happen that we have these collisions with space junk and, and things that are purposeful and being used in space right now?
4: So, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a threat to the satellites that we rely upon every day, you know, for uh, navigation, for weather forecasts, uh, for communication. Um, But fortunately, collisions are rare so far. Um, we had a major collision back in 2009 involving an operational satellite, um, but, but nothing of the, the same consequence since. Uh, so so that's, that's really good news. But uh, on a day-to-day basis, uh, the satellites above us are having to manoeuvre all the time to avoid other objects that are, that are in the vicinity. And, uh, you know, as we look out into the future, just trying to maintain the safety of all those satellites starts to get a bit harder.
1: What about something like the International Space Station, for example, and, you know, a, a, one of those, one of the, the tiny, so-called tiny objects out there. If it hits the international, the international Space Station, what kind of damage can it do or does it, or, or is it protected from things like that? So
4: the space station has um, absolutely um, up-to-date shielding on it to protect uh, both the station and obviously the the astronauts and cosmonauts on board. So those shields that are um, installed on the space station can stop an object about one centimeter in size that's traveling at about six or seven kilometers per second. Um, so that's a, an extraordinary feat. So the, the energy involved in that is is just enormous. Um, but anything that's larger than that, so a golf ball sized object, for example, um, has the potential for penetrating those shields, um, putting a hole in. The International Space Station, and potentially, um, you know, leading to the the, the loss, the catastrophic loss of, uh, of the station and the crew. So it's it's obviously a, a very big concern for human spaceflight.
0: What, what what's the life cycle of these objects, Professor? Do the uh, you know the orbit decays and they, uh, burn up when they re-enter the atmosphere, or could some of these pieces of space junk come back down to Earth?
4: So, uh, for most objects. Um, in what we call low Earth orbit, so that's uh, up to about 1,200 miles uh, or 2,000 kilometers, um, those objects are subject to atmospheric drag. So they, their orbits are uh, potentially slowly decaying down. But but we've got many objects that, that will remain in orbit for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years or, or even longer than that. Uh, and, and those are obviously a very big concern. Now, the objects um, that are, are slowly decaying down thanks to the atmosphere um most of the material gets um, incinerated by the, the heat of the re-entry but we do find occasionally that that some some parts of the spacecraft can survive down to the surface so we've very recently uh, seen I think um a, an item that washed up on a, on a beach in Australia for example uh, and and that can happen because those objects are, are made of uh, materials that are, that are heat resistant um, or they're shaped in a particular way that that, that means that they they don't burn up in in quite the same way uh so of course down on the ground we're we're at risk um from from space debris as well but it's not quite um as much perhaps as uh, as other risks
1: professor what's being done or needs to be done to address this space junk problem i mean is there is there a giant space junk net they can collect things in or how, how do you how do you remove these things that are that are up there that could potentially be really damaging
4: it's a, it's a really good question and, and it's really hard, actually, to, to try and solve the space debris problem. But there are um, organisations and companies that are working to do exactly what you suggest, to to, to go up and remove objects uh, in orbit and hopefully some, some big objects that, that we can get out of orbit that, that will prevent some collisions in, in the future. Um, But but it's a very, very difficult thing to do. It's it's one of the most demanding things that that you can possibly do um, in in orbit. It's it's to go up to an object which is tumbling, which is potentially really large, and to try and grab it with with, with something and then to to pull it down, um, uh, to to burn up in the atmosphere. That's incredibly difficult. Um, So so one of the the best things that we can do is actually uh, not create the the debris in the first place, Um, and there there are um, international guidelines and standards that exist that that try and promote behaviours in orbit that that will prevent us from creating the debris in the first place.
0: Well, it's interesting, uh, Professor, because on Earth we've got borders uh, where we live in individual countries. If there's something to be cleaned up in Canada, it's the responsibility of our nation, for example. Uh, But space, uh, perhaps a different animal due to the international uh, nature uh, of the atmosphere within space. So, and I'm assuming that this isn't one country responsible for all the space junk, so technically who would be responsible if it did get down to cleaning up this mess?
4: You're absolutely right. So, um, especially in, in low-Earth orbit, that spacecraft don't remain over one country. Um, but but what they um, are is um, they are those objects... Belong to a particular country, um, and and actually that the um, that country only has the the authority to go up and and, and remove them and to, to to touch them, unless that um, authority is transferred to, to another party. So so that's that's something that makes the removal of debris objects a little bit harder. So you know a, a Canadian mission could remove a Canadian um, piece of debris, um, but you're right. Lots of countries are responsible for, for the objects uh, in space, so it, it would require um, an international effort to clean up space um, and potentially we have to overcome this issue of, of what we call the liability, the, the fact that one country is responsible for um, its own uh, debris.
1: Fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Professor. Appreciate it.
4: You're very welcome. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you. Hugh Lewis is a Professor of Astronautics, a member of the Astronautics Research Group at the University of Southampton. Fascinating that there's that much up there, and even like things that are items, objects that are so small can do so much damage.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting because this is this is what we do on Earth. This is what we do uh, oh, yeah. outside of our planet. Do just we just garbage. pollute everywhere. And I think there's that you know wanderlust to 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 explore the heavens, and that's great. But we're just leaving our... It's like camping. What's your pack
1: in, you take out. Yeah, it's
0: like camping. (laughs) But if we lost, oh, let's go to space. And we lose that idea? Or it's just so vast, you think nothing of it. But Mm -hmm. the consequences down the line. Eventually, we'll have space. And I think that would be a great movie, Space Garbage Man.
1: You know, I don't see what the big deal is. Hollywood has been doing, taking care of all this stuff forever. Yeah, if they can land on an asteroid. Exactly. We'll just rely on them. Absolutely. where's, Where's Bruce Willis? We got this.